Welcome to Teachings in the Air. Air, air. podcast with Jerry Oldman, coming to you from Hunkameenam Territory with a podcast series about Indigenous men's health and wellness. We aim to inspire, motivate, and empower Indigenous men to be sound in mind, body, and spirit, because that's what health means. This is Teachings in the Air with Jerry Oldman. Today I come here to talk to you about activism. I'm thinking of calling this podcast From a Warrior to a Warrior or Part 2 of Look Before You Jump. Because of what's happening right now. You know, the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. Everything is going on right now. It's brought me down memory lane, you know, and uh, about answering the call to fight for justice, to stop the pain and suffering, to make noise, to make myself present, to create change, and that's what I'm doing through the podcast. The goal, of course, is social change to change society, to stop the racist policies and laws, to stop harm from happening to my people. You know, all of the events that continuously unfold seems to me when I hear of a death at the hands of a police officer, the feeling I get is that no one seems to care. And it saddens me. It saddens me to think of the families, the mothers and fathers of that person, the children, if they have children, the siblings, the cousins or relatives and their friends what they must go through. You know, when I was in high school, one of the courses I took interest in was history, world history. There I started to hear about Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Youngest Khan, 
you know, these ones that would unite people and do empire building. It, was, it seemed glamorous to me. You know, and I didn't think of people being oppressed and their land being stolen. I just seen these ones in history that history has told. It literally is his story, men telling stories. You know, when I was in high school and I started to read, as I became interested in history, there were two books that I read in high school that influenced me to become an activist. The first one was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I don't know what got me to read that book. It's a thick book with tiny print, but I read it. And I'm a visual learner, a visual person, so I could see in my mind what Hitler and his cohort were doing to gain power with the brown shirts, you know, and the messages that they were giving out. It was so shocking to see what they were doing. You know, the whole idea of the master race and ethnic cleansing. I could see it, I could feel it. And I, you know, I'd see that they were killing. They wanted to wipe out all the Jews, the gypsies, the handicapped, the gays, and the, the ones that spoke against them, their own people. They would kill them too. Ah, that was such a frightening book. But I could see how I started to understand how people would take control, would take over. The other book that I read was, uh, I don't know how I even got a hold of it or how it ended up in my hands, but it was a handbook by Che Guevara and Guerrilla Warfare. And I read that book. So seeds were being planted on me to be a revolutionary or to be an activist. There are statements that I heard at this time that were motivating me, that were motivational to me. First one that I heard was about racism and what people were saying, that white is right, black step back, brown step down. You know, that triggered me to want to fight, want to do something. And the other, other statement that would just get me shook up and angry and emotional was that we were called the vanishing race. And I could see that. 
Our language was disappearing, our music, our ceremonies and rituals. I, I guess I got so upset because there was some truth to it that I felt at that time. So those were two books that planted the seed in me. That I wanted to be part of a movement. But when I left uh, residential school in 1968, there was not a platform for me to join. And at that time I had no skills or anything in starting a movement. I'm just so impressed with people that do. There's youngsters that do that. It wasn't me. I was damaged goods walking out of that school. So I, you know, left there. And um, started to be a laborer and an addict and an alcoholic. So, at this time, too, there was a civil rights movement in the United States with Martin Luther King Jr., with Malcolm X. And I started to, with every now and again, get inspired. You know, and there was Mahatma Gandhi in India. So I had this, like, this visuals of these people that were doing something. Oh, and I'd see the pictures of what is going on in the United States of America with black lives. And, uh, you know, it was on TV, so it was pretty blatant. The beatings, the dogs. Seemed like nobody cared for them either. Growing up, I had that feeling that nobody cared about us as indigenous people in Canada. Like when I was still in high school, you know, as a member, one of the indigenous men got killed by an RCMP officer in a jail cell in Williams Lake. I remember when we'd gather as teenagers and one of my friends said, hey, you want to kill an Indian? I'd look at him and he says, join RCMP and he'd laugh. So we knew how serious this was at that age. People wonder why we resist arrest or run away when the RCMP come. Because we're afraid for our lives. So that was what is unfolding around me in my life. 
that there were people, individuals that became the voice of change. And I also, because I was and still am an avid reader, I'd also read about Pontiac, Chief Pontiac, Chief Sitting Bull, Poundmaker, Chief Seattle, these different uh, Geronimo, Crazy Horse, these ones that would I'd consider fighting to save a way of life, which is our way. So those were all in the mix of Jerry. I guess you could say percolating inside of Jerry. In my community, there was an elder named Tom Bull. He had told me one day, the sleeping giant's going to wake up. And we're, we're, we're working with our people. You know, we'd see the impacts of colonization being lived out in front of our eyes, and we were trying to put it together, seeing what we could do to help the people. There'd be suicide, violence, addictions, broken families. And one day he said to me, one day, Jerry, the sleeping giant will wake up. I realized later that he was talking about all of the indigenous people. That we'd wake up and become one mind, one heart, one spirit. To fix ourselves, to fix our lives. So after I left the addictions life, I could see more clearly. I was more alert. And the first call to help. And, I, you know, nobody really called us, but we heard what was going on with one of our communities. All of a sudden, they, our, one of our communities blockaded a highway going through their community. Of course, we'd ask why, and uh, we were told that um, the, there were grandmothers that were fishing, and drying and smoking salmon. And the fish and game officers came in and cut their nets and confiscated their nets. <laughs> Already at that time, you know, many of us would be in trouble with um, fish and game because they were putting in laws and restricting our food fishery. It was a plan all along that they're going to do this when they put us in a reserve. So anyway, the people rose up in that community. You don't mess with elders. You know, when you do that, something's going to happen. So we, as a community, decided to send support. And I brought people. 
And I got introduced to a spiritually governed resistance. How it happened, I don't know. It's all I know is it happened. When we pulled up to the road blockade to enter the community, they had security, indigenous security, manning the blockade. And they came up to the vehicle I was driving and said, There's, there are no alcohol, drugs, or weapons allowed. We need to check your vehicle. So they did. And we didn't have any, of course, so they let us in and we set up camp. It was there I started to wake up and accept being indigenous. It was there I felt it rushing through my body. Every cell in my body was waking up to be indigenous. Because, you know, there were times when I was growing up I hated to be indigenous because of the awful ways, words of stupid Indian, crazy Indians, drunken Indians, what I was hearing in the world. I was ashamed, I was angry, I was depressed. I was afraid. So, one of the first things I heard when we were there, there were these people around a fire with hand drums. The men had long hair and they were hand drumming, and they were doing chanting and traditional music. It drew, as soon as I heard them, I went over, and I was watching and listening with this hunger to do that too. And I was standing there watching, and one of the men seen me and done that head gesture of, hey, come here. <laughs> so I went over and he says, join us. I said, I don't know how. He says, you will, you'll learn. So I stood with him. And it was so empowering for me to be there. And it just got better. A day or so later, they announced that there's going to be a sweat lodge that anyone's welcome. So I made sure I went. Because I'd heard about sweat lodges, hadn't been to one, and here I am, you know, 26 years old, 27, actually, never been to a, a ceremony. There it was. They had this Cree elder. He came and built the lodge and was going to do the ceremony. I remember I went and I was afraid to make a mistake, to make a fool of myself. And this man was so gentle, so aware. And he thanked us for being there and told us not to worry, we're in a good place. And he said that his ceremony was going to be in Cree, in his language. 
and for us not to worry because he would he had his helper to translate so we'd understand as the ceremony was going on. I remember when I seen this man praying with his pipe. At one point in the ceremony, he was weeping. And uh, his helper was said that he was praying for his grandchildren, that they'd be all right when he leaves, that someone would teach them and carry on. When I seen that, I started to think, I want what this man has. He's authentic, he's real, he's filled with passion and emotion. It was, uh, that whole event was life-changing for Jerry. I start to grow my hair, I start to be interested in ceremony, I started to ask questions with my own elders, with my own family. So that was my first activist experience, standing with people that accepted their identity, no problem, they're proud of it. Oh boy, (laughs) that was a life-saving moment for me. After that, I, my activism was being an addictions counselor. We were promoting, we're saying culture is healing at that time. So I was working one-on-one with families, defeating alcoholism and addictions. Then uh, the third... The second um, activism I got involved in was what they called Save the Stein, the watershed that we share with the Khatmuk people, the people from Lytton area. So we'd have concerts and send out information, do petitions where there's all kinds of things happening to save the Stein. Eventually we saved it because of uh, people working together. There's a movement. And again, I remember I went to one of the events and I helped build a sweat lodge up in the Alpine. Largest lodge I ever helped build. And we used it every day while we were there. So again, it was spiritually guided. And then I, my third activist story, I guess you could say, or history was, I became a chief of my community. <laughs> I didn't really want to be that. You know, it was an Indian act system, but people persuaded me to, so I 
went in. And one of our members, daughter had uh, cancer. And I'd support the family and I could see the pain and suffering because of this cancer. My grand-auntie had passed from cancer too. So I'd hear about carcinogens and our tribal council sent me a message saying that BC Rail was going to be spraying herbicides along the Anderson Lake and Seton Lake. And what they were spraying had carcinogens. So I said, I'll go stop them. It is an emergency. So there was one other man that came with me. I jumped in my vehicle and drove to the end of the lake and stood on the track. And the train pulled up to me, the work train. I had these flat cars with spraying machines, nozzles that would stick out the side and they're going to spray along the lake, all along the railroad. This man come up to me and he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm here to stop you any way I can. My people eat fish out of that lake. We pick berries from beside the lake. And our my people are getting cancer. And I'm told that that substance you're using has carcinogens in it, so I'm here to stop you. He left and uh, people were telling me later they could hear on uh, radios that <laughs> they were calling RCMP, Railroad Security. and You know, there's a lot of noise. So I stood there with my one supporter thinking I'd go to jail and I'd be all right. But they came and they said, we won't spray by, by the lakes. I said, oh, well, you want the train to go through, and it has to go through because there's other trains coming. And I said, but one of my members is going to ride with you and you're going to give them the nozzles so they won't spray. To my surprise, they accepted it took all the nozzles off the spraying machines and put it in a bag and gave it to the, one of our members who was going to ride the train. So that was number two. This is driven by the visual of people with cancer and that we didn't have this before and is coming from the carcinogens not only from the herbicides but the PCBs that is created from the hydrogen hydroelectric plant right smack dab in the middle of our reservation so I was aware of that
And after that, we got involved in uh, fishing rights. You know, members were going to jail for fishing. The fishing game had put in restrictions on us food fishing, where at one time we go when the salmon are there. We'd get enough salmon for all winter. We'd dry it, we'd can it, and we'd freeze it. And they started to confiscate nets, vehicles, give people fines, charge them in court. And I remember we had a demonstration down by the Fraser River, and it was planned, and we just have one fisherman out on the fishing station with a dip net, a traditional dip net, fishing for salmon, and we'd switch. And fish and game flew into the area with their helicopter because there was no roads there. And we're all standing there, these officers marched down. There's one of our chiefs that had his turn on the net. I remember they handcuffed him behind his back. We were walking him off the fishing rocks. But they didn't have the legs or the balance to walk because it's very rocky and uneven. And we could see the chief was actually holding them up as they're taking him to the helicopter. You know, when we put our mind together, our minds, we can do things. We don't have to be violent. In those ones, those early activism days, you know, we, we weren't swearing at the policemen or the fisheries officers or screaming at them. We were standing there together with our head up, looking them in the eye. I was so proud of the people at that time for what they were doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, Along comes 1990 and the Oka crisis. And one of my friends, who is a chief of his community, because we're following it on the news. And I was working for the tribal council at that time, and so I'd meet with them, and he phoned me, and he says, Jerry, he says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to blockade the road that runs through my community, the highway, in support of those people in Oka. He says, I was watching TV and they were burning effigies of indigenous people. The Canadians were protesting in Montreal and Oka, and they were burning effigies of indigenous people. It shocked him and disturbed him. He says, I can't take it anymore. So I said, okay, we'll come and support you. By the time we got there, the RCMP had arrested him. He was all by himself in the road. They came and arrested him. So we went to liberate him at the jail, me and another chief. 
and we got him. We got him out. I don't <laughs> to this day understand how it happened, but it happened. So we went to the next community. This time in force, we gathered people, and we blockaded the highway. And we had pamphlets to hand out to the people, informing them what we were doing. We could see that the townspeople and business people were getting upset. And we're, we we talk amongst ourselves and we say, we're not really against them. You know, it's the government that we need their attention. So we decided to move the blockade off the highway to do and put it onto the railroad, which was a BC, the provincial government's railroad, BC Rail. So we went to my community and set up a blockade there and stopped the trains. After our second day, this helicopter landed in the field by where we were, and <laughs> we're surprised it was uh, the premier of British Columbia. Someone came to me, and we were having a ceremony, and they said, hey, the premier's here, he wants to meet with you guys, the chief, chiefs, the leadership. So we sent word, um, you know, set up a circle on the tracks and tell them we'll be there after our ceremony's done. So we finish the ceremony, then we go up and sit in a circle on the tracks with the premier. He told us, he says, hey, boys, he called us boys. <laughs> he says, every day you guys are sitting here, we're losing a million bucks a day. So I come here to see, to get you guys, to see if you guys will stop. We wanted them to acknowledge our declaration that our chiefs had made in 1910, that we hadn't given up our land, our territory. So he signed it. He says, you guys stop the blockade now? And we said, no, we want to meet with your cabinet to discuss our land claims issues. So he said, okay. And I said, if we don't hear from you, and um, <laughs> we gave him a couple of days, and we didn't hear from him, we said, we'll set up the blockade again. And we did. We set up the blockade again. Again, we were organized and we instructed the people, no one's to talk to the media. Only specific people were going to talk to the media. And we're not going to have weapons, alcohol, or drugs. I remember the feelings, the tension as the RCMP started to arrive. One of our members, there was one road that come to our community, public road, 
There was another one, but it's a BC Hydro right-of-way road, very narrow. They call it the Goat Trail. So you could say there's one way in by road and by rail. So the RCMP had driven, one of our members seen them. And they stopped this vehicle and they let out snipers. Deployed themselves at the edge of our reserve where we were. We couldn't see them, and we knew they were there. I remember the first arrests. We would go on shifts onto the track. One group got arrested, and the next group would go on. So our first group, this large helicopter came in. And they arrested that first group. You can still see them. They were handcuffed behind their back with these plastic cuffs. And they had them kneel in the field waiting for the helicopter to land. They took them. Then later on that afternoon, we went to our community hall for a feast for dinner. And there had been RCMP that ended up on foot. They had to cross through our reserve to get out of there. And um, so their vehicles had come and they were on one side and they were waiting. And someone come up to us and said, hey, there's these RCMP coming up the road. So we went out to look and sure enough, we could see all this like, a bunch of RCMP officers with German shepherds and they were marching towards us. So we we all went out onto the road and started walking towards them. And as I was in the front line, as we got close, all of a sudden I could see their commander saying, go, 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 go. And they all started trotting towards us with their batons out and the police dogs. And I was right in front and this police dog lunged at me and I stuck out my hand drum and he clamped onto the edge of my hand drum. So I'm yanking it to get it out of his mouth. And I get it out and another RCMP officer had come up beside us, you know, and the dog was on the leash. And I yanked a drum out of his mouth, the dog seen that RCMP officer beside him, seen his leg, and he <laughs> clamped onto his leg, and he was mauling that policeman's leg. And the officer was screaming, Get him off me! Get him off me! Uh, the dogs were frenzied. So they kept rushing through our line, and they're grabbing people, arresting them. Till they got and they loaded them under vehicles and left.
we started to put out a call for support after that. The next day, uh, RCMP, I guess the commander, early in the morning I was down there with the chiefs and we're having coffee and he walks in. He had a riding crop under his arm, I remember he had blue eyes and he's looking around. It's his beautiful day. And he left. Later on, I don't know how long after, maybe an hour or two, they came in on force. Helicopters and buses. The buses were like a mobile jail cell. They had interior was lined with um, like fencing material so they were packing us off the tracks and um, there is a I don't know there's a whole bunch of us they separated me and two of the chiefs and put us in a jail cell they come in they're going to fingerprint us one of the chiefs says, we're not criminals. You're not going to fingerprint us. We're not criminals. So we refused to be fingerprinted. Then they brought in these documents and said, if you guys sign these, we'll let you out right now. You sign this and you promise you're not going to do this anymore. And we'll let you go. You'll be free. But we refused to sign them. One of the chiefs sent word out. He said he's going on a hunger strike. As soon as he said that, all of a sudden, the jail was surrounded by our people. And the RCMP let us go. Right after that, in Oka, they'd called the army and the army came. And we had people up there. We sent people over to support them. So we thought we better go get them. So me and um, other members of our nation, two of the chiefs, we went over to get our people. That was... uh, surreal experience like a fantasy like shouldn't be happening we got there and we were going to go to where our people were behind the barricades they had been barricaded in by the army we were going in a night I remember and we are going through this forest there's a helicopter flying above the forest with a spotlight. We would leave and we'd run to the next set of trees and hide until the helicopter was going in another direction and we'd run again. And while we're doing this, we'd see half-tracks, army vehicles with machine guns and soldiers. And I remember watching and saying, this is real, man. This is Canada. Can't be what it was. 
Then there was razor wire with soldiers standing behind with their rifles. I remember one of our young members, we marched up to the razor wire and we were singing. One of our members went right up to a soldier and said, Are you going to shoot me? Yeah, we stayed there until the negotiations fell through and then it was over. But I, there were people from all over the continent there to support, show support from the United States, from all over the country. The potential for change at that time was huge because one of the negotiating issues was sovereignty. If that was signed, I think we'd be in a different situation today, but it didn't, so that's why I think we still need to unite to put our minds and hearts and spirits together. So that's my path. After that, I started working with addictions again, prevention, education, healing. Started to work with residential school survivors, support them as they're going through civil court and criminal court. I still am. No, that we do need to make noise. We need to let them know what's unacceptable. But we also must have a plan. We must have replacements to put in place. If we don't like the Indian Act, we must develop an, an act or a way for us to govern ourselves. Not just rise up in anger and rage. I, I see some of the things that are going on, and it's important that it brings light to the issue, but I say, what's swearing at a police officer, sticking your middle finger at him or her? How is that going to change anything? So I get disappointed with that, because I know that's not our way that we're honorable people, dignified, that we shouldn't stoop to their low level, to speak the low language, the foul language, that's low language. You know, that's, they can't describe something without swearing about it. As, uh, my young neighbor here was asking what I thought about what was going on in the United States with Black Lives Matter and stuff. So I told him I get saddened to say, to see what's going on. I get inspired to see the courage of people, and I'm hopeful that there will be change. And I said I go up and down. I've been truthful with him. He's a 14-year-old Canadian kid, young man. I said, what do you think about it there, young feller? 
And he says, you know, it's totally despicable. <laughs> and you know that after that conversation, I had more hope if there are young people in Canada that recognize this. There's got to be hope here. Totally despicable. I know there's adults out there who will say, you know, it's totally effed up, man. You know, they swear about it. They got no ways of expressing how bad it is other than to use the colonizer language. Low-life colonizers. That's how they talked. Anyway, so... This is my appeal that we unite and that we plan, we have a plan. That we become one mind, one heart, one spirit about fairness for everyone. It saddens me to know about the murdered and missing indigenous woman in this country. Seems like nobody cares. Well, there are people that care, but not enough to go out and make noise in a big way. I guess that's part of the problem. Racism and chauvinism in this country and the world. That's, I feel, is going to change. I'm going to finish off with the song I was singing, that song I heard by the fire. And these young activists that were spiritually governed were singing. And they're going, D-I-E, I'm not your engine. D-I-E, I'm not your engine. D-I-E, I'm not your engine. We don't need your constitution. We don't need your constitution. my little talk on activism and uh, you know it becomes a way of life being present 
you know, standing up for what's right, making noise when we get stepped on so they'll stop stepping on us, but doing it in unison, doing it with respect. Oh, and I'd hear the people from the Confederacy talking about seven generations. And I heard this one of them saying, and we're talking about the full length of a life, like 80 years, seven generations, that's over 500 years they're planning. They're doing it for the seven generations. Then they start over after the seventh is reached, so it's just going on forever. Not thinking in fiscal years or five-year plan, but in seven generations. That's what we must do for the planet and for the people. Not to let the ale-doers or the evil-doers have their way. Because they're so blatant about it. I often wondered, why don't we stop them? Why, why aren't they stopped? The ones that will destroy Mother Earth to make a profit. Why, why do we go along with this? And it's because, like my cousin told me, I'd be worrying, worrying about, you know, the ecosystem, about addictions, about violence, about suicide. And he said, Jerry, I want you to stop being a worrier. I want you to be a warrior. So I'd invite you to all think about that and make up your mind what you want to do. But that's my message. And uh, hopefully you get something out of this. And uh, in a way, I revisited my memory bank. And the people that I was involved with, some of them aren't here now. And it was sort of sad looking back and um, knowing that, but also knowing that intense pride I had as indigenous when we stood up together, when we linked arms, we put our resources together. And we planned and we talked and we implemented. So that's my take on activism and thank you for listening and until next time, see you later. <laughs>